Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardwar. I'm reviews editor Sherlyn Lowe. This week, we're going to be taking a deep dive into Clearview AI. This is a company that the New York Times reported on a couple weeks ago. We didn't really have a chance to mention it last week, but I think it is important to know what's up. Uh, They are pioneering scary new facial recognition technology. We're going to dive into all of that. And later in this episode, we're also going to be talking about Billie Eilish and the rise of home recording. She won several Grammys over the weekend, and I think it says a lot about what you can do with a DIY setup. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe to the Engadget Podcast on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review, all that fun stuff, and drop us an email at podcast at Engadget.com. So Clearview AI. This is a strange company because it's basically a stealth startup that nobody had heard about over the past few years. What's up, Sherlyn? When I first heard the name, I was definitely very confused. I was like, (laughs) Clear Channel? Clear Channel. Only Sherlyn will think about Clear Channel. And there are also theaters, right? Isn't there a Clearview? Clearview theaters, yeah. So here's what Clearview did. They basically went and scraped every every publicly accessible image that they could from social networks, from sites like Venmo, from other websites. And they put it together with an algorithm for facial recognition technology and basically figured out a way to mathematically interpret your faces. So everyone's face becomes a mathematical formula. And by doing so, they've created what appears to be one of the most accurate facial recognition systems ever made. And what's particularly scary is that this thing has been around for only a couple of years now, but law enforcement agencies have been using it. And they've been cracking cases by basically just pulling up a photo of a perp or like a photo of something happening um, or a video file or something. And they're able to almost instantly match that face to a person, to their social media profiles, to something else. This is a whole new level of facial recognition technology. It is kind of terrifying. There is a lot going on here. Any thoughts, Sherlyn? Like, a- I think facial recognition software has been good. AI has been, you know, like there's people using algorithms that machine learn how to do it better for a while now. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the scope of the resources being used here is yeah. what's so They have over fast. 3 billion images exactly. in their database right now. Like, it's not like law enforcement hasn't been matching people's yeah. faces in the past, but they've only used government-provided uh, pictures like right, from right. your mugshots, from the DMV or whatever. Right. So the FBI, that's what the FBI has yes. access to. I think I saw a breakdown of uh, from the New York Times article. The FBI only has access to about 411 million images right now. And that is 
it's a lot less than three billion. Exactly, three billion is is so much more information, so many more ways to pinpoint who it is they think was mm-hmm. the perpetrator of a crime. And so, I mean, that's what really was shocking for me about this. Like, facial recognition doesn't like surprise me anymore because it's being used in Google Photos. It's being used right. in your photos library. But the extent, like, so. The, uh, the Kashmir Hill article from New York Times, I think, made a really good point. The extent of facial recognition development has actually been purposefully yes. slowed by yes. Google and by a lot of yes. companies because everybody sees the potential danger yes. here. Like it is this could be a nuclear bomb against privacy. This could literally. Be, yeah, that was my thought. This like, could be the end of yes. privacy forever if we perfected this tech. Google could have done this yeah. years ago, probably. Yeah. Facebook could have done this, too. Like, I'm sure they all have their secret projects that they haven't talked about. But nobody's released, like, you know, just recognizing somebody's face in your Google Photos album is very different than what this thing is doing. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, but there's there's a lot more to this story. I mean, did you want to, like, keep going? Because, like, I have so many thoughts yeah. I want to Well, let, let me just bring up the founder is a 31-year-old entrepreneur named Hon Tondat. Uh, I may be pronouncing his name wrong. Sorry about that. But he is a guy that's sort of infamous for creating um, a bunch of, like— just shitty startup ideas. Like basically, <laughs> if we did a podcast about bad startups, he had a couple. Um, uh, his in two thousand nine or around then, he created something called Video, which was a service that just let people spam links to their contacts. And this was actually written up at the New York Times back in the day. Jenna Wortham wrote that up in the old Bits blog, so that's a throwback. This ended up being something that also spanned Gmail accounts. Google called it a phishing scam and basically killed access, like just killed the service outright. By the way, I found a really old Gawker article because Gawker covered him quite a bit. And my old editor, uh, I worked with him at VentureBeat, my old editor, Owen Thomas, noted that uh, this guy's Twitter profile described himself as an anarcho-transsexual Afro-Chicano American feminist studies major. So clearly, what is that? Clearly, somebody who's trying to troll the libs. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But, I don't know. And the other co-founder, by the way, is Richard Swartz, who is a former aide to Rudy Giuliani. So this is a company backed by people who I think have a very different ideology compared to the rest of Silicon Valley. Maybe I'm not too surprised why they may want to go full steam ahead with facial recognition technology when everyone else is like, guys, this could be a bad idea. They just never thought about it. They just never paused. Or or if they <laughs> did, sure. they just didn't really seem to care. I don't think care. they care. That's the other thing that really got me about the story as I was reading it, that like, okay, so I can I can see how you know, these two people or whoever else was involved with the company just wanted to make something and then sell it for a lot of money. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. I understand greed. I understand that. What bugged me more was when the police officials, the law enforcement agency started using it and then like word of mouth spread. Like, yeah. and because it's so never, easy. It's so easy. I get it. I get how it could be good. If you're catching someone who's definitely a perpetrator, who definitely deserves to be mm-hmm. in jail so quickly it made your life so much easier yeah. to like arrest this person. I see it. But mm-hmm. why didn't you stop to think about <laughs> All of the other potential bad things. It's not their job, right? Like, I think a lot of cops just want to solve cases. So, like, Indiana State Police, according to the New York Times, solved a case within 20 minutes of searching something on Clearview. They were able to find um, basically a shooter and ran his face and, you know, directly tied to one of his social media accounts. And, like, that's that's magic. That's the sort of yes. magic you expect to see on, like, a CSI show or yeah. something. And, and I don't argue against yeah. that. I don't say, I'm not saying that, like, we shouldn't find ways to make, like, police officials' lives easier, make it easier to find people who mm-hmm. actually committed crimes. But, yeah. like, at some point, someone <laughs> at 
I feel like at every stage in this yeah. process, everyone's going to be asking the question. Every step of the way, by the way, of making police officers' lives easier is a is a knock against civil liberties. And that's something maybe the cops don't think about as much anymore. And maybe these companies that want to sell these services to cops don't really think about. One thing that I found particularly chilling, uh, one early investor, uh, David Scalzo, said, I've come to the conclusion that because information constantly increases, there's never going to be privacy. Laws have to determine what's legal, but you can't ban technology. Sure, that might lead to a dystopian future or, or something. something, but you can't ban it. <laughs> or something? Anyway, the big takeaway here is that a lot of law enforcement companies, over 600, have been using Clearview's technology for a while. Nobody knew they were doing it, and there was really no discussion about it. And that's a shame because a lot of cities, a lot of major cities like San Francisco, have already banned the use of facial recognition altogether. But the fact that this company can exist and they think they can just do what they want, even though what they're doing, scraping images off of a lot of these social networks, is directly against their rules. I I think it's that too, right? The blatant going against all these restrictions because Twitter also then said that like scraping its website oh, for, for sure. this for for these images and to use it for facial recognition is explicitly not allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's where a lot of us are concerned too. I I have to say like the the David Scalzo quote, I kind of agree with the early part of it, which is that like there's never going to be privacy. Like, well, that's sure, what we're sure, learning. Sure. What's that's what we're all fighting against yes. is like this constant erosion against privacy, but. Yeah. The thing is, okay, are you going to do something to help maintain it? Or are you going to profit from the fact that, you know, there are all these lax regulations around privacy right now? It seems like, you know, that's what they're going for. I think at the very least, this whole thing shows that we need better federal regulations. We we need people in the government who actually understand technology to understand the potential of something like this, because it is terrifying. Because let's, let's think of like the worst case scenario here, too. Like right now, it's just cops using it. But a cop who wants to stalk someone, uh, maybe an ex-girlfriend or something, or wants to figure out, like, who's this new you know, guy my girlfriend is hanging out with? Like, they can instantly look up information about people. The New York Times found evidence of code that would tie into augmented reality glasses. So imagine, like, just walking down the street and doing a full-on Terminator heads-up display or Robocop thing of, like, just getting instant identification of everyone you're seeing. Like, this stuff is not just the future. It's not just science fiction anymore. Like a database like this is pretty much here. Those glasses don't exist yet, but it's not going to be long. Like we've already seen Google Glass that failed, but the, you know, we're going to get there eventually. It's very like, I don't know if it reminds you of that Bryce Dallas Howard episode of Black Mirror, (laughs) but it's basically that without the saturine colors and the like positivity. Sure, sure, sure. I, oh God, like (laughs) the potential for this to go so wrong. So wrong. Well, here's one thing. So when Kashmir Hill was uh, exploring and talking to police, um, apparently, uh, so she was talking to police to have them run her face in the database. Apparently, Clearview started contacting those cops and be like, are you talking to the press? Right. Which is just... So clearly, clearly no, they're looking at the searches. Uh-huh. They, it, it flags things in their system on their end. So even the law enforcement officials, if they're just randomly searching for maybe a witness to a crime, that triggers something on Clearview's side. They know. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's why we need regulation, because this company now has all the power. Yeah. And it's up to them. And also, speaking of that company, it's problematic as hell, because who else is involved with this company? Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, who is an early investor. Uh, His quote to the New York Times says he's not involved with the company, but he did give the CEO $200,000. But Peter Thiel has his fingers in, like, so many nefarious things. He's bankrolled a ton of crap. A ton of crap. Well, I mean, early investor in Facebook. But also (laughs) um, he created Palantir, which is this 
like weird, big data, anti-terror, anti-crime. Like a lot of people, we don't know what Palantir does, but it basically uses big data and analysis to to basically help prevent terrorism. It's something the CIA uses. The CIA's um, venture arm had invested quite a bit in Palantir. It's a weird, cloudy company. We don't know what's up. Uh, Peter Till helped fund the lawsuit uh, for Hulk Hogan that killed Gawker. Peter Thiel is also, I believe, behind Palmer Luckey's Border Patrol startup. There is, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, this is also the guy that um, he's investing in life extension and age extension in so many ways. He funded Aubrey de Grey's crazy research. If you've seen Aubrey de Grey, he's been featured in Wired or you know, just so many magazines. He looks like a weird cross between mm-hmm. Rasputin and Gandalf. He says he's working on ways to stop aging forever. Um, it sounds like garbage, but it's not surprising that Peter Thiel is funding something like this. And also, like, this is a guy who was also tied to Peter Thiel, is tied to the whole, like, um, figuring out ways for older people to take in the blood of young, healthy people to stay healthy that was never proven but there are a lot of like breadcrumbs pointing him to it it was something silicon valley the tv show made fun of even um that's peter Thiel. that's kind of what he does so not and so maybe he's not directly involved but him bankrolling this does not give me a lot of hope at all peter Thiel also on the board of facebook and Mm -hmm. this company is directly doing something that's against facebook's terms of service so their excuse, by the way, like when when people brought up like oh, you're not supposed to do that, the CEO just said, well, other people are doing it and no one said anything yet, which is the great philosophy of every technology visionary, I guess. I mean, n- not just the fact that there's questionable people involved in this, but also the fact that the technology is not necessarily proven yet. You can't like it's what was it like? Not it's not proven that it's accurate all the time. They say it works 75 percent of the time, but nobody else has tested their tech. So yeah. we don't know. So, like, we're supposed to trust that this is going to match. Like, also, what what algorithm are they using? How is there is there going to be like bias for certain like yep. I don't know skin types or face people shapes? who look alike. Al Gadari, a privacy professor at Stanford Law School, uh, said something really interesting to the New York Times. He said, it's creepy what they're doing, but there will be many more of these companies. There's no monopoly on math. Absent a very strong federal policy, we're all screwed. Yep. That is not a. It's not very a hopeful. Quote. Yeah, I mean, I felt this way for a while, so it's not that I'm surprised by this quote. Um, but this just coming to light actually makes me just more convinced that, like, yeah, my face is in every database ever, yeah. and you know, if you just don't, it's like. It shouldn't be this way, but it almost is like if you don't want something out there, don't put it out there. Yeah, it's also it's too late for the vast majority of us too. Yeah. So it's like I, I believe the CEO was like, "Well, we were considering a way to let people untag <laughs> themselves from our system." Like, uh, sure, yeah, don't it's trust anything these people are saying. Also, they're based out of uh, the WeWork in New York, so they're actually not far from this office. Oh. We need to just go walk over there. Um, the other thing yeah. is this ties into also Amazon's like the ring camera stuff. Mm-hmm. All of the stuff that's already looking at us can now be tapped because apparently yeah. even if Amazon had a policy against using that footage by Clearview, Clearview's just going to be like, oh, screw you, everyone's mm-hmm. doing it, so I'm going to do it. This is sort of an opening of the floodgate. So I think that quote from the privacy professor is really telling. Like yes. even, if we, even if we stop Clearview, even if somebody like just says, no, you can't use this service Someone anymore, you can't use our data – Somebody else is going to do it. The floodgates are open. The, the ring cameras are one thing, but now if like you can automatically identify exactly who's who, yep. like if somebody is approaching your door and you can get a quick like, oh, this person was in jail, yeah. is now ringing your doorbell. What are yeah. you going to do? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. The augmented reality glasses bit of it is the worst. Like, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Everyone you look at, there's no more privacy. Anyway, please read the New York Times article about Clearview AI. We're going to be following up on all of this. I think it's important to think about facial recognition because a lot of people, I was looking at the comments on the New York Times article and people were like, hey, this sounds great. I want great facial recognition. I want it everywhere. I want it, I, I want to be able to quickly detect me. I want to be know who people are. Those and, are the people who would use this to stalk exes. Yeah, for sure. There's also, I think we're getting to the point where we need to think deeply about a lot of our technological advancements. And we just have not. The tech companies won't because a company like this all they want to do is like make something big, make something profitable, sell it to governments, uh, you know, make a big exit at some point. Like this is a guy who's been trying to make it big in tech, not by thinking about what it means or deeply. He just wants something to win. Yeah. I mean, and to that point, I will have to give the companies that have been able to do this and then refrain from doing it some yeah. kudos. Like, thank you for thinking about it. But now we're kind of now help us help us uh -huh. prevent this from becoming It was sort of like the people behind the Manhattan Project, except there was no World War Two happening. <laughs> so it's like Google's like, well, we could do this, but uh... are we are we ready for this? Uh, and the aliens are like, are they ready for this yet? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. Speaking of, you know, terrible privacy concerns, mm -hmm. we've seen several stories this week related to all of this. Avast, the mm -hmm. antivirus company, has been selling user data Again. left and right. Again, not something that surprises me because, like, I feel like my doctor's office does it whenever <laughs> I fill out a form. Sure, you know what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. But, but yeah, terrible. Like, Avast being a company that you wouldn't think would do it because their whole thing is security and privacy. Security. Well, yeah, never trust antivirus companies. I think also... <laughs> I mean, given all the McAfee, not spyware, but the McAfee like bloatware that's been installed in so many computers lately, like even newer computers, like that new HP Spectre X360 I came was testing with. came with McAfee, came with a bunch of it, came with a VPN app, which I'm like, guys, we don't, so much don't need to pre-install this. Um, anyway, it's not great. The Avast story is just kind of sad and disappointing. I will say, pro tip, you probably don't need any virus software. Windows has gotten really good. Windows Defender, keep your stuff up to date. Be wary of what you're opening from your email. Don't go to privacy. You know, don't go to weird torrent sites, even though I know you want to. I'm looking at you, Sherlyn. Um, <laughs> don't go there. Just stay away because that's how you Just get infected. Just be careful. Just be very careful. I mean, I'm not going to go as far as to say you don't need antivirus, but it, things have improved to the point where your browser Windows has built in antivirus. Yeah. yeah. Mac OS has done better about yes. stopping apps from like doing stuff. In general, things yeah. have gotten better, but. Yeah, don't don't install bloatware carefully. Don't install bloatware. And be careful with Avast. I don't know what's going to happen here. So this was a story co-reported by both Vice Motherboard and PC Mag. Really nice to see, you know, big tech sites diving into stories like this. Yeah. Yeah. And you also mentioned something about medical records, Sherlyn. Like, uh, <laughs> I wonder, why should you be worried about your medical records being shared? Well, I'm worried because this week we also learned that a health records company called Practice Fusion is also using your data to push addictive painkilling drugs to your doctors to, in the hopes that they'll prescribe it to you. Not like we're having an opioid crisis or anything. No, yeah, not like that's not a thing right God. now. So, yeah, there you go. Really, really garbage fire this week. Garbage fire. And this <laughs> is also why we don't have like a unified healthcare database of any kind because like we can't even – these companies are behaving so badly. But like, yeah, when you want to go somewhere and you want to share – 
your records with another doctor or specialist. You can't. You can't. You got to go get a paper record. Got to love it. Do not get me started on how broken the American healthcare infrastructure is. So broken. Yeah. So broken. I will say a lot of our complaining about these tech companies, it does seem like things are finally starting to happen. Facebook's oversight board, which they announced in December that they'd be putting $130 million behind a board to deal with content oversight. Uh, they're going to start hearing cases this summer. And they say it's going to be you know, a board made up of people who use Facebook, not like typical Silicon Valley people. I'm not quite sure what that means. And I also, I do not trust Facebook at all to get this <laughs> right. Like, I feel like it shouldn't be Facebook doing this. I feel like there should be some independent oversight. Facebook is such a weird big company now. And they have so much influence and so many users. Like, they have more power than most countries. I don't know. I feel like we're going to need new rules to deal with countries this big or start having ways to break them up because we can't trust them. The giant takeaway is we just need regulation. We need we need authorities to be like, look, we need to get informed about this, about what's possible and what's already happening and just really crack down on it. Quick update on this news. After we finished recording, Avast announced that it would be shutting down its JumpShot subsidiary. And it apologized to users saying that they want to be vigilant about users' privacy. Uh, that may be a bit tough to swallow, given that back in December, Firefox also pulled two of their extensions for collecting more user data than is necessary. So clearly, Avast has a lot of work ahead of it to regain user trust. Duh. This past weekend was the Grammys and, you know, controversially or otherwise, Billie Eilish actually swept up pretty much all the awards and doing so actually with an album that was produced out of her bedroom studio with her brother in their parents' home, <laughs> which is just kind of encouraging for a lot of like home studio people like myself. It's the DIY dream. It's yeah. the DIY dream. So uh, I, you know, wrote an article that got published this week about her achievement prove that yeah we can all do it but i got a lot of reactions on twitter um because people <laughs> hate billy eilish or also hate the grammys and you know what that was not the point of my article i kind of want to just like say yeah. for the record that i did not ever in my article say whether or not i liked her at all it's and okay you don't have to defend against random i know trolls. i know they but suck. i just feel so like annoyed that people miss the point but that's the internet right people yeah, all like what internet. you like people it's it's easy so we're going to talk about how much easier it is today to set up your own home studio. And joining us just to talk about this is managing editor Terrence O'Brien. Hello. Oh, hi, guys. And Hello. you'll also hear from producer Ben Elman because obviously he has thoughts. He's the guy who makes us sound the way we sound on this show. <laughs> Duh. So for the last few weeks, I've been walking around and just going to myself, but... It's only like 40% Billie Eilish, and it's really 60% Seth Everman. Oh, okay. Thank you, Seth Everman. Uh -huh. I mean, first of all, I'd like to like share a little behind the scenes with everybody. This story was not my idea. I have to give full credit or blame <laughs> to Terrence. I'll take blame. Blame. It's blame. It's, blame is fine. We yeah. should just list Terrence's email so all that hate can go straight to Terrence. Because too. he deleted himself um, off of Twitter so no one can get angry <laughs> at him online. Well, to be fair, I didn't delete myself off of Twitter. I just decided I wasn't using Twitter uh -huh. anymore. And then Twitter took the decision whether or not I could return away from me. 
I don't know. I feel like you deserved it. Mm. Um, That's fine. <laughs> that's a personal opinion. We, we don't need to go into why I'm not allowed on Twitter anymore. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. So, that's so, another show. So Taryn's uh, got that idea and, you know, like asked if, I, and I think that, you know, I like to tell the whole world that I'm your favorite, but I am. And of the people that you manage on this time zone anyway, I feel like I would have been the right person to pick it up anyway. I'm right here, Sherlyn. No, I was the best person to pick it up. Wow. And that's it. I'm the most musical other than Taryn's and maybe Billy. And, and- and by best, really, what she means is she was the most willing. Sure. I mean, I wasn't really willing, but I was like, all right, yeah. you know what? <laughs> Music, audio equipment, and Billie Eilish and Grammys, I'll do it. So anyway, um, let's let's just tell y'all what happened, right? So Billie Eilish won a whole bunch of awards, including best record of the year, uh, record of the year, song of the year, album of the year, um, best new artist. And then Phineas, her brother and producer, won Producer of the Year. The album, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go, also won like Best Engineered Non-Classical <laughs> and also Album of the Year. It's a, it's a let, ton of Let me just say, looking awards. at this from the outside, I'm like, listen, I've seen Billie Eilish videos. I've heard some of her stuff. I was like, this is fine. At first I was yeah. like, who is this 12-year-old on <laughs> YouTube that everybody is loving? But she's good. And uh, Aaron Soporis, uh, one of our UK guys, really explained to me like why she's interesting and why the production is great. So, But looking at this from the outside, it does seem crazy. I do feel like that time when Arcade Fire won the Grammys and everyone was like, who is Arcade Fire? <laughs> so you're the old guy on the other side of that now? Yes, definitely. I so some of the tweets I got were like the Grammys are terrible. Billie Eilish has no talent. I'm like, look, <laughs> when you're 18, recording out of your bedroom, you tell me how easy it is well, to win a Grammy. She started yeah, at much younger too, yes. wasn't it? She first came on my radar, I think, when she was like 15. Uh, she had that track with Vince Staples, uh, "Burn." That was when I first kind of heard of her, and uh, "Ocean Eyes" was even before that, and that's like also a really amazing track. But yeah, she's been at this for a long time. Yeah, and she's not like completely untalented. She's got chops. Like if you listen to the the technicality of her singing, mm-hmm. she has skills. She doesn't sound like auto-tuned to hell at like all. so many other folks. Yeah. yeah. Not compressed, not auto-tuned. And so getting to the real seed of this, it's not that there hasn't been home-produced records that have done Mm -hmm. really well and that have maybe won a couple of Grammys. Uh, For example, Grimes' breakthrough album in 2012, Visions, was done entirely in GarageBand, which for anyone who's used GarageBand is shocking. It's Mm -hmm. a pain. (laughs) Um, But 2019 was a huge year for home-produced music really like becoming a global phenomenon. We've got Billie Eilish's record produced in their parents' bedroom. We've also got Lil Nas X Mm. and Old Town Road because Lil Nas X was like sleeping on his grandma's couch or something. His producer, Young Keo, uh, used just like a market-friendly FL Studio license. (laughs) The the lowest lowest level FL Studio license and a very well-placed Trent Reznor sample. Mm -hmm. And it became the new longest-running Billboard number one. Ran for, what, 17 weeks, 18 weeks, ousted Mariah Carey? In fact, it was the only reason that Bad Guy did not hit number one on the Billboard charts earlier. And and just on, on that, too, like, one of the more interesting things to me about Old Town Road is not only was this some guy just like making beats probably also in his parents bedroom with uh an affordable version of fl studio 
But Little Nas X got the beat off of like a marketplace for 25 bucks. It wasn't like he didn't go into a studio with a producer and record a song. He went online, paid 20 bucks to this dude and said, I like this track. Mm -hmm. I'm going to rap over it. Mm Um, Definitely one of those marketplaces where you're kind of afraid that you're going to get a virus, too. (laughs) I don't think that I've ever seen a rap beat marketplace that didn't make me feel like I needed to wash my computer afterward. Yeah. I'm going to leave most of this discussion up to you guys, the music experts, but I do want to throw a shout out to the New York Times features. uh, Their music section, they do this great thing where they basically FaceTime an artist and do this video feature about how did you come up with this song? Uh, they did it for Rosalia. They did it for the Billy, this Billie Eilish song, too, So and Old Town Road. Mm-hmm. So it is that's a great feature. It really breaks down the complexities of music artistry for people like me who don't know everything. Anyhow, whether or not you like her music, there's a lot of ways that you can set up your own home studio already. So like quickly after my article got published, Terrence incredibly quickly published his guide to home studio gear, right? And so if you want to read that, it's already on the website. But yeah, I mean, we thought we might just go into it a little bit more. You, If you're an aspiring, I don't know, singer, podcaster, and musician, and you want to do it all from your own home, and you have what, like a decent budget? I mean, you kind of just need, you need a room and then move on from there. That's yeah. what Devendra is telling yeah. you. But let's hear yeah. from well, Terrence, who actually has a studio. I do. I use, I use that term very loosely. I have a studio in quotes. Um, I I would say, honestly, you don't even really need a room. Yeah. I don't have a room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my, my studio is a wall in my living room. <laughs> so this is like a shared <laughs> space. I just like all of my stuff is shoved behind a baby gate. Uh, really all you need is a computer. I'm not relying purely on my expertise here. I talked to a bunch of people who have home studios who record music professionally for this piece, and every single one of them had said, the most important thing you need, need is a computer. Mm-hmm. As long as you have a computer, you can make music. Everything else, while nice, is kind of optional. Really? Like, not even a good mic to sound good? So in my piece, if you read it, uh, I highlight. <laughs> clearly, a... I didn't. <laughs> you you clearly didn't, Sherlock. Wow. Thank you. I have Thank actual you for work to do, Karens. <laughs> a buddy of mine recorded an entire album using GarageBand on his iPhone and the wired headset that came with oh, his God. iPhone. Oh God. Um, ben is having sounds... a seizure right now. Yeah. Ben is on the it floor. It sounds surprisingly good. So here's what I'll say: is when it comes to that sort of stuff, obviously, if you want to record a pop masterpiece in the vein of Billie Eilish that setup is not going to work Mm. for you Mm -hmm. but if you know the limitations of your gear you can make the most of it you know that this is not a clean vocal album that my friend recorded it is that vocal is fed through a lot of effects there's a lot of stuff going on to make it very electronic and 80s sounding and kind of synth poppy but it works in that context and you know the sound of his guitar again has to kind of play into the lo-fi reverby nature of recording something through a phone headset but it works if you know the limitations of your gear you can get a lot out of it that's really important to mention if you're not going to be spending multiple thousands of dollars on a microphone (laughs) you might not get the perfect perfect sound but you're going to be within shooting distance you might need a plug-in or two or you might just need to use eq Really, like, use the stock EQ that comes in whatever DAW you have (laughs) and just play around with things until they sound good. What's a DAW? Digital Audio Workstation. Thank you. So, Terrence, run us through your studio. Um, Well, my studio is a little bit weird, Um, so let's just keep that in (laughs) mind. It's been 
cobbled together slowly but surely since I was about the age of 15. Oh, wow. So the like 100 the years centerpiece ago. Of my, yeah, my, the centerpiece of my studio is still a Tascam four-track cassette Porta studio. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> I love this thing. It is amazing. Ugh. The preamps sound great. Um, also, I do a lot of like manipulating tape loops and stuff, so I use it for that. But that's like my go-to mixer for everything. All of that runs into a Scarlett 2i4 audio interface from Focusrite. Um, and into my Dell XPS 15, which is probably the newest addition to my studio mm-hmm. because I had been using a seven-year-old ThinkPad for a while that really had seen better days. Was that last year's XPS 15? I seem to remember you got it recently, uh, right? Yes, this is. I bought this last yeah. year, late last year. After you read my um, review. So that's, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of the core of my studio. As I'm sure a lot of people can probably guess just listening to me talk, I don't have a great singing voice. <laughs> I know. Um, so I don't really do a lot of vocals. Uh, the mic that I do use if I do record vocals is this guy that I'm in front of right now, which is a Blue Microphones Spark, I want to say. Wow. <laughs> kind of forget. You're really an expert on this. Uh. <laughs> It's like they're like hundred dollar mm. XLR condenser mic. We have to get to you a new microphone, uh, Terrence, for sure. Well, yeah, it's it's primarily aimed at like streamers and like podcasting. But mm. again, I'm not singing too much. I'll use it occasionally <laughs> to track guitar, and then also I have a pile of like Shure SM57s and SM58s, which are not great for doing vocals unless you're going to be uh fronting a punk band basically mm. now sure sm58s are better known as just the microphone that you find absolutely anywhere if you're going to show up to like any kind of show like you said like a punk show or something those are the super durable microphones that punk singers are like cheese grating their teeth on mm. they're also the microphones that are at literally every school auditorium They're cheap, they're durable, they're just like in that sweet spot where everyone who needs just a microphone is going to have an SM58. You've definitely touched one in your life. I'm just going to jump in and say that I use the Audio-Technica AT2020 that Billie Eilish also used to record the early tracks in that album. Uh, And while writing this article, and we were talking about this before we started recording, but like while writing this article, I was very concerned about the idea that like a $450 subwoofer was considered affordable because I (laughs) always think about like a struggling kid or like a person who maybe doesn't live in Mm -hmm. like New York or whatever. What is, how, how is that affordable? So well, you start, yeah, you start somewhere. Yeah, you do start somewhere. So for me, though, like the eight, then I thought back to my, like when I bought my AT2020. I remember I was like, I don't know, 21 or something. I barely had yeah. any money. Everybody tell your first AT2020 stories. Because yes. I also, that was my first right. podcast real mic, the AT2020 USB. It yes. was about 180 bucks back yeah, then. Exactly. Yeah. I bought it for like, well, 200 Singapore dollars back then. I bought it in Singapore and mm-hmm. I dragged it all the way to America with me. I haven't parted with it yet. <laughs> And, I mean, I had saved up for a while for it. And, yeah, it's within reach. Like, mm-hmm. I also throw out there, like, there, there is a spectrum of diminishing returns. Like, you spend enough and you get really good quality. And then after that, you're spending a lot more to get mm. much better. So I feel like the AT2020 is that nice sweet spot. It of, is. It's a big leap over, you know, $100 or $50 mics. But you got to go much higher to get much better quality. 
the defining thing about Billie Eilish is her voice. So Sherlyn talked about her favorite microphone. Maybe I'll say a little bit about my favorite podcasting microphone, which is the Shure SM7B. Mm. You will find this in every podcast room built after, let's say, 2015 or so. <laughs> With the big groundswell toward people being interested in podcasting, there were a lot of folks who asked long-time radio people how to build a studio, and we all said the Shure SM7B. I know that my personal audio guru, mm-hmm. a guy that I've worked at a studio with for a few years now, has said that he put a SM7B right next to one of our studio's Neumann U87s. The Neumann U87 is a $3,500 microphone that is just the standard workhorse for NPR broadcasters. Mm -hmm. And he said he could barely tell the difference. So if you're looking for something that is really, really good for a fraction of that cost, SM7B retails new for $400. That's not bad. I've been using, by the way, the Shure PG42, which sold for like $250. And sound like a, it sounded like a decent upgrade from the AT2020. You know, just two quick pieces of advice for anybody who's like really just getting their feet wet in producing music at home. Two temptations to avoid. A, avoid the shortcut of buying a USB microphone. Do not do it. Buy an audio interface and buy a traditional microphone. The interface is going to give you a lot more room to grow and a lot more flexibility. If you just go out and buy a Yeti mic and plug it into your computer like... It'll get the job done, but that's kind of what you're stuck with. USB is good for podcasting. Um, I will say that. If you're just podcasting from your end, you want to go bring your mic somewhere or bring it to a hotel, that's great. But yeah, beyond that, get an interface. Oh, if my Yeti wasn't currently out on loan, I'd be using it to talk to you right now. Mm. And then the other thing, don't go out and buy studio monitors. And especially don't go out and buy expensive studio monitors. If you're making music at home (laughs) in a bedroom or like I am, hiding behind the couch in the living room, a pair of headphones is a much better mm-hmm. option and it's much more affordable and a pair of $100 headphones is probably going to get you a better mix, better sound and more accurate frequency response than a $300 pair of yeah. studio There, monitors. There's a standard Sony headphone that has been in use since like the 70s and is 80s. The, the Sony MDR 7506. <laughs> the, the very headphones I am wearing at this moment. Yeah, I have a pair at home. They're great. They're neutral. They're they're cheap. They're great. Yeah. They're under a hundred bucks. You can like, you repair them. The, like the individual components, you can take it apart and like replace the individual things. It's it's kind of great. All right. So well, anyway, thank you for coming on, Terrence, to tell us all about how to do this the pro way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining. Semi pro way. <laughs> Semi pro. Yeah. No, amateur way. Uh, thank you for having me, everybody. <laughs> Get back to work. Thanks, Terrence. So let's move on to what we are working on next. I'm talking to a bunch of people about our move towards bezel-less screens, and specifically in laptops. So having a couple of conversations with Dell about their Infinity Edge screens, but as a broader trend too. Like I do feel like we're seeing TVs get their Samsung showed off a almost zero bezel TV at CES. Uh, I'm going to be exploring like what that means and our desire to have a screen without any borders. Clearly, there's some sort of deeper argument or something to have there. Anyway, I hope I will be able to figure that out by next week. Phones also have that, but I think on phones, the lack of bezels altogether is harder because it's like, harder. it leaves yeah. you less yep. room to hold. Phones and tablets, you need you need something to hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just published um, a piece about Bitmoji TV, which just launched, or is launching this weekend. And it's basically another spin on 
made for Snap TV shows, but it places you in, like as a star of the action. So it's kind of like a Futurama episode starring you. Your ugly bitmoji. Your ugly bitmoji God and one it. of your friends. Anyway, that that just published. Am I but... the only one that feels like bitmoji are just a crime against the internet and humanity? I... They're really ugly. I... They're just bad drawings. I think the art could be a bit better, but I have mine. It barely looks anything like me. I don't even use it anymore because I don't have bitmoji uh... stickers on my phone. But anyway, uh, beyond after after bitmoji TV, uh, I will be swamped in February with Samsung and MWC. Like it's just ramping up from here. You might yep. not hear a lot of me from here on out for the next month on this show actually well except for the episode you may be doing maybe, maybe. we'll see we'll see and as for things keeping us sane art and gadget picks uh this week i've been just spending a little time with some games i've meant to play for quite a long time there's indivisible a game that was crowdfunded several years ago by the creators of Skullgirls, and it's a sort of like action rpg it's interesting because it's hand-drawn art. It looks beautiful. Mm. It's set in like a southeastern Asian country. It pulls in a lot of like Indian and Buddhist mm. culture. Like it, it's doing a lot of things that I really enjoy. And as an RPG, it also is really wild too. It reminds me of like Valkyrie profile. Mm. This is getting deep, but like just the combat is very different. It's not like Final Fantasy. It is almost like a fighting game. Like some of the just countering moves against mm. enemies, you need like rapid response. Last night I was fighting a boss. It took me an hour of just, like, chipping away at this HP. It's not, like, a laid-back hour. It's, like, me, like, really being up with my response timing. So that was fun. Um, I wish it was better written. Mm -hmm. uh, But it's a good-looking game. And I really am a sucker for 2D side-scroller Metroidvania-type things, too. It's not just an action RPG. It's also a Metroidvania, which is fun. I'm also putting time into Kentucky Route Zero, which is a game, uh, basically, we've been waiting uh, almost a full decade for Mm -hmm. this entire series to be completed but after several years the final episode is out uh it's also now the tv version is on switch playstation 4 all the consoles this is a point and click adventure it's about i don't know search for life search for meaning uh it is sort of like an anti-capitalist greed uh, similar to uh, disco elysium as well it's really good it's really it's like a fun visual novel too so i'm playing it on switch uh, just because I can take it anywhere and also play on my TV if I want, I'd recommend it to you, Sherlyn. I know. I like these. It's like it's a little, it's a little like ghostly. It's a little creepy, mm. but it's really interesting and has such a great style. So Kentucky Route Zero, everybody, check it out. Uh, Jess Condit wrote up a good piece about Ooh. it for us at Engadget. I love Jess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also love just taking a break and leaning back on my couch and reading. <laughs> Just something lo-fi. And uh, my pick this week is a book that I haven't read in a while, but I, you know, reread about 20 times when I first read it. It's called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. It's a book about, well, Lori Gottlieb herself is a licensed therapist. And it's about her going to talk about, to talk to a therapist for her first time after a while, after like something happens in her life. And it really explores like what people experience uh when they enter in a session like this she talks about some of her patients as well as her own experience with her therapist and kind of like that whole like is he thinking about me like this is he thinking about me like that but then she also takes you on a journey of like 
like sort of self-discovery but it also helps you identify like things that people do so for example when like someone's yelling at you then they're, they're not necessarily yelling at you they're perhaps projecting or it's about their own insecurities and it's like stuff like that that she really describes in very situational ways that like help you understand uh some of these things so it's kind of like going to therapy without going to therapy and i really recommend it for anyone that's like getting through any period that's of fun. Dark, your first like, steps times. towards actually going to therapy yeah i actually started it. reading it yeah. after i went to therapy it was weird because like i was like oh my god this is what my therapist is thinking <sighs> Oh boy. oh, boy. I need to behave differently. This is the <laughs> word I can throw at him. Um, but it's it's a really good, like, really good read for those who are looking to understand themselves and others better. Well, that's it for the episode today, everyone. Thank you, as always, for listening. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find Davindra online at... At Davindra on Twitter and I podcast about movies and TV at SlashFilm.com. Check out the Slash Film cast there. If you want to tell me all the things you learned in therapy, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sherlyn Lowe. Email us all your feedback at podcastedengadget.com. Please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts, including Spotify. And then come back next week for a fresh new episode. She checked that thing off for a headache. Let's give her some opioids.